So good to be worshiping with you all this afternoon. It's our fourth service together at Cross and Crown Church. And thus far, Pastor Jason has been laying out for us the foundations from where we will launch forward as a church community. First, starting with the mandate of the Great Commission in the first service in the message that Jason delivered on our first Sunday entitled, Christians are called to take the land. And then laying out the methods by which we do so in the sermon, how Christians must take the land. Then last week, making clear what it is that sets Cross and Crown Church apart in terms of our distinctives. Now in this sermon, we examine a question that is related to one of these distinctives that Jason relayed to us last week, and the distinctive is entitled Comprehensive Christianity. And the question we will examine today is, how many kingdoms does Christ have? Also, what is the extent of the kingdom? What is its purpose? And how does Christ rule as king? The debate within the church over the nature of Christ's kingdom and how it interacts with politics and culture is raging. Because of the paradigm-shifting days we live in, people everywhere are becoming more and more self-conscious about the foundations of their beliefs, about religion, culture, government. There's a whole host of issues we come across every day. Secular humanism, radical Islam, government and politics, abortion, socialism, sexual ethics and LGBT, foreign policy, secular versus Christian education, business ethics, gay marriage, Hollywood movies and entertainment, and on and on and on. You get the picture, right? And yet, as Christians, many times, uh, we are largely confused, paralyzed, and directionless. Uh, Christians are asking themselves, does the Bible speak to any of this authoritatively? What is God doing in the world? How should we then live and why? What is the kingdom of Christ all about? And how does it intersect with these issues? Does it intersect at all? What is the extent of the purpose of the Great Commission? Does it relate to political and cultural issues at all? What does it mean to disciple the nations? Aren't all of these institutions just going to burn up anyways? If so, to what extent, if any, should the Christian be concerned about them? What does it mean for a Christian living in a fallen world to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom? As we seek to be informed by the Word of God, let us turn now to our text again in Colossians 1, 15-20. Here Paul is addressing the church in Colossae. Verse 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Father, we ask that as we as a church, that we would be able to press the crown rights of your Son into every realm. Father, we ask that first of all that would start in our own hearts. Teach us today from your word and help us to obey by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So this passage is just such a beautiful picture of the supremacy of Christ in all things, the totality of his rule over everything in heaven and on earth. And as it says in verse 20, how it was the work that Christ accomplished on the cross that means the redeeming of all creation. It doesn't say that the redemption of all things starts when Christ returns again. It is mainly a function of Christ's first coming, not his second coming, that gets the ball rolling in terms of turning this whole creation around. As Paul states in verse 18, it started at the resurrection with the firstborn of the dead and those who were raised with him. It doesn't say that Christ came the first time to redeem some things. But what does it say in verse 20? All things. Just things in heaven or also things in earth, on earth? All things in heaven and on earth. In his discussion of Augustine, Cornelius Van Til uh, was discussing uh, the basis for worldwide transformation towards Christ. And he concluded, quote, Augustine believed that peace with God precedes peace in the home, peace in society, and in the state. The earthly state, too, must be converted, transformed into a Christian state by the permeation of the kingdom of God within her, since true righteousness can only be under the rule of Christ, end quote. You see, the story of God's redemptive work in history is not limited to man's fall into sin and then being redeemed to escape this planet. It is much broader than that. We see that in verse 15, 16, and 17, Paul goes to great lengths to establish that it was Christ himself who created creation. And Christ is therefore entitled to all of it. If you build it, you own it. Christ built it. He owns it. Christ, uh, Paul establishes that. You see, uh, think back to the garden. Everything that was made was good. It was made very good. The first man, Adam, was placed in this good place and was given Eve as a partner. It was Adam's task to multiply, fill the earth, work it, and subdue it, to take dominion over it. His purpose was not to escape the earth. On the day that Adam fell and rejected God's rule over him, though it was promised that through the offspring of Eve, Satan would be crushed, in the meantime, until the Messiah came, Satan began his work of going out and deceiving the kingdoms of the world to secure their allegiance to him and to his kingdom. Genesis 3.15, I will put, and this is the curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The offspring of the woman set against the offspring of Satan. So the fundamental struggle of history is between the kingdom of the serpent and the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, the entire Old Testament is written in anticipation of this coming Messiah who would bring his kingdom with him and destroy the works of Satan. Daniel 7 is an, an example of this anticipation of the Messiah. And it's actually a picture of what happened the moment Christ ascended after having been resurrected from the dead. Let's read Daniel 7 verse 13. And 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So he's coming on the clouds, presented in heaven before the Ancient of Days. That is ascension. And to him was given king, uh, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Not some people, nations, and languages. All people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his 
kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Messiah is promised the inheritance of the nations at his ascensions. So we must ask at his ascension. So we must ask ourselves, what does it look like to be a faithful servant of God in the kingdom of God, given that Christ has inherited the nations? Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must understand that in Christ we are restored to be able to carry on the work that Adam was given in the garden. The Great Commission is a project of liberation. The Great Commission is about bringing the nations to Christ, not just for their own sake, but so that man could be restored to faithful servants of God in the kingdom of God who can resume the project of dominion which was uh, in place before the fall in Genesis 3. We were created for work, for good works, not as a means of earning righteousness before God, but having been redeemed, we are freed from the bondage of sin to obey the Lord in the power of the Spirit. This kingdom will also have an effect upon the creation, as we are told. As it says in Isaiah 65, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. We are not saved from the wrath of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ to sit in a floaty cloud place to lounge around with harps in our white bathrobes or even for a never-ending worship service. We are redeemed by Christ, the successful Adam who restores mankind to what the first Adam was supposed to do in the garden, to be restored to faithful servants of God in the kingdom of God who would flourish in all the earth, going to every corner and extending the garden. This is why Paul wrote to Titus, Titus 2, 13-14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The project of the Great Commission is that heaven would be brought to earth, that the way things work in heaven would be replicated here on earth. And in heaven, the Father is worshipped at all times. This is why we pray in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is why in the high priestly prayer, Christ prayed not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from evil. Praying for Christ's kingdom to come is also an imprecatory prayer, That's, that Satan kingdoms would go. There are only two kingdoms, remember, and they aren't divided two kingdoms of Christ. They are Christ's kingdom, and that kingdom is at continual enmity with Satan's defunct kingdom until the last enemy is defeated, death. In the New Testament, we see this fundamental struggle of history between Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom on steroids. We see Satan's kingdom delivered a death blow on the cross, and with Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, inheriting all authority in heaven and on earth over the nations, Satan is bound and is being looted. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, this is following uh, his resurrection right before his ascension, 
Christ says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So now is the time period where the church is unleashed in the power of the Spirit to loot Satan's defunct kingdom. Just as the Israelites plundered the Egyptians on their way out of slavery in Egypt, just as Joshua drove out the Canaanites in the Promised Land, so we drive out the forces of evil, not by the sword, but with the gospel, as hearts are transformed then to seek to worship Christ, having been freed from the bondage of sin. Christ describes this war when accused of the Pharisees of being on Satan's team. He exposes them for their folly and then shows how, to the contrary, he would be leading the charge against the kingdom of Satan. Let's read Luke 11, verse 27 and following. Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, strong, when one stronger than him comes and he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So we know that Christ's kingdom is here and that the nature of Christ's kingdom is one that loots Satan's kingdom. What else do we know about Christ's kingdom? We know that it is not derived from the world or from the systems of the world. No earthly authority placed Christ in charge. As we know from what we just read, it is heaven and not earth which has bestowed this authority upon Christ. This is precisely the reason that when before Pilate, Christ told Pilate that his kingdom, his authority, was not of an earthly origin. Christ was pointing out that his rule was higher than the rulers of the earth. Sadly, this passage is frequently misinterpreted as Christ saying that Christians should not participate or seek to redeem the cultural institutions that surround us, but that we should retreat to our Christian ghettos because Christ's kingdom is not of, uh, of this world. But Christ was not saying that his kingdom was not in the world. He was saying that his kingdom was not of a worldly source. It was not of the world or from the world, as it says. Christ's kingdom is of heaven, but the extent of Christ's heavenly rule does not stop at the pearly gates. It is total over heaven and earth, hence why it is a very good thing that his kingdom is not of this world. That Christ's kingdom is of heavenly origin and not an earthly origin should terrify earthly kings who would defy him. We also see very clearly that this heavenly kingdom which Christ brought with him would include the obligation of civil rulers to obey him. Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to my Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Now, all of this analysis is more than just an intellectual exercise or a chance to increase our head knowledge or even our scriptural knowledge. What you believe the Bible teaches in this area will affect how you personally live. It will affect how we lead our families. It will affect what we see is the mission of the church. And as groups of churches in Warrington and in Northern Virginia, it will affect whether this society worships God or not. Let's consider a fictional story. Let's say you own a landscaping company and a homeowner hires you to take care of their property while they're away for the year. When they send you the instructions of what to take care of, you only look at the front page and you don't bother to read the back page. The front page has all the instructions for keeping up the tomato patch in the backyard. So you think that's all your mission is. So you spend all your time with the tomatoes and neglect the rest of the yard and the front and the back. Three months in, the place is starting to look pretty rough. And other people in the neighborhood are starting to notice that you're only working the tomato patch. And they're not happy about it. They say to you, hey, what, what about the rest of your yard? Aren't you supposed to do the whole thing? You tell them, if I get distracted by all of that, it will get in the way of my tomato patch. I may do a few things to tidy up around here, and that would be nice of me to do. But really, it's not part of my mission. The homeowner returns to find his property, more than just the tomato patch, a jungle, barely recognizable, weeds and overgrowth, vines everywhere, no discernible flower beds, just an utter disgusting mess. Only the tomato patch looks good. <laughs> the homeowner is in anger. He says to you, what were you thinking? I had a job for you and all you did was focus on the tomato patch. You were supposed to tend the yard. Then the homeowner replies, that wasn't my job. Your instructions only gave me the tomato patch to take care of. Church, for a very long time in the United States of America, the church has deemed the culture, business, government, education, sports, art and entertainment, law, and economics as not part of the job description, not part of the mission. We have regarded ourselves as being in a self-imposed exile, and when the job looks in the least bit daunting, we cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, pluck us out of this mess. Jesus did not pray that for us. He didn't pray that we would be removed out of this mess. He gave us a job to do, and not just the tomato patch. Wrong views on this issue leads the church into, at the very least, ineffectiveness and retreat, and at worst, enablement and even cooperation with the forces of evil. As we think about the witness, or more accurately, the lack of witness of the church in the last century, following the so-called enlightenment, following the emergence of Darwinianism, following the civil war, and following the abolition of slavery in America, we go on to see the continuing impotence of the church during the horrors of eugenics and the founding of Planned Parenthood in Christian America, extreme nationalism in Christian Europe leading to World War I, the rise of Hitler in supposedly Christian Germany, the Great Depression and the rise of statism in the post-Christian West, the worldwide advance of communism over the following decades across formerly Christian nations, and the human bloodbath and destruction that was left in its wake, leading to today 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade, going along with rampant sexual sin as the new normal, humanism in our schools, socialism in our government, and either an impotent, muted response from the church or outright cooperation of the church with this evil. As we think of all this, we can see the need to establish clear and firm convictions about what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the church checks out of culture and ceases to be salt and light, the culture heads where you would expect. We can't advocate that the church stop tending the garden, then come back and look at a disheveled garden and say, look, things are getting worse. See, don't have expectations that the world will ever get better. 
Whether Christians are conscious about it or not, Christians, many of them do, I used to, at least in practice, have a view about what, kingdoms, uh, about what Christ's kingdom is and how it relates to the cultural institutions of the world. Although the theology around the doctrine of, the king, uh, of kingdom theology has developed over the centuries, from Augustine to Luther and Calvin and Kuiper and to today, where we find ourselves essentially in the midst of a conflict between two main prevailing views. What, I've been, what I have just been describing has gone by different labels and titles, but for our purposes, what I've been advocating as the true picture of kingdom theology and the biblical picture, we'll refer to it as the one kingdom view. Various flavors of this one kingdom view have been held throughout church history, but at, at this time, at least for now, it has taken a backseat to the radical two kingdoms perspective and to great detriment. This radical two kingdoms view, which has in the last century become predominantly held, in a, in, uh, at least in practice in America and the Western church, is again typically known as the radical two kingdoms view, which it is, radical. I, I do hesitate to include this, but I will, just for fear of adding any additional confusion. But I do think it is important to note that there is a historical two kingdoms view, which doesn't commit the same errors as radical two kingdoms. Contrary to today's modern radical two kingdoms view, this older uh, view, um, and Augustine's view prior to that view, um, uh, had no problem with the concept of Christendom. Some of the confusion has been caused by the radical two kingdoms advocates who have been misappropriating quotes from those in church history to give the misleading conclusion that their view is the historic reformed or confessional view. Uh, far from it. I'll say for the record that I really don't like the, label, the labeling of the historic view as, the, as two kingdoms because the Bible never speaks of two divided kingdoms of Christ, so I don't think we should speak of it either. The labels are sometimes unhelpful. In any case, Radical Two Kingdoms. Radical Two Kingdoms teaching can be defined as the view that there are two distinct kingdoms which God rules over. Broadly speaking, these two kingdoms are the kingdom of the church and the kingdom of the state. Somehow, in this view, Christ rules over the church with the Bible, dictating how the church should be run, and, Christ, and God rules over the state, but it is not to be governed by the Word of God in Scripture, but through what is referred to as natural law. Further than this, Christians should apparently not seek to impose biblical standards upon government or other cultural institutions, nor expect the redemption of culture to happen at all. At the outset, we must understand that an important aspect of Radical Two Kingdoms teaching is that it smuggles in, as my friend Joe Boot would say, a pessimistic, under-realized eschatology and a reductionistic view of the Great Commission and ultimately the message of the Gospel. To go further, this perspective does not really even affirm that Christ's kingdom is in inherent conflict with the institutions of the world, whether political or cultural institutions. In this view, there is no way to Christianize government, art, or business, or economics, and the concept of Christendom itself is not an end of the gospel or an end of the Great Commission, but an obstacle to its success as Christians can apparently become distracted from the main goal of converting souls and rescuing them to heaven. As if teaching the nations how to obey isn't part of the Great Commission. Of course, we can agree regeneration comes first, but then what is the question? Any significant attempt by the church to transform these institutions would be labeled an unhealthy distraction. Christ's declaration that his kingdoms is not of this world is treated as a declaration that his kingdom is not in this world. It's not so much that they deny that civil institutions would be, would be better, in sh better in better shape if more Christians were in them. It's that they don't 
don't think of cultural institution, institutions as something that even need redemption. Because in their mind, that's for later when Christ returns in the consummated new heavens and new earth. Without this pessimistic eschatology, their system makes very little sense, so they must continue that emphasis. So be aware of that. If you believe... If, if you believe that it is inevitable that the church will be overwhelmed by the forces of evil, then you could see the allure of this teaching, at least from a psychological perspective. I know I could. In Scripture, however, this pessimistic narrative of where things are heading prior to Christ's return is nowhere to be found. Again, we need to start with creation. In the beginning, God created the family and man's rule and dominion over creation. After the fall and the resulting curse, God's plan of redemption is not only about redeeming souls to avoid hell, but He is redeeming everything that was corrupted back into a glorified Edenic state. He is destroying all the works of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, quote, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right? The, f the first time Christ came, the reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This final return of the earth to the, extended, the Edenic state happens fully and finally at the consummation, which is yet future to us, when death and sin is finally uh, defeated, but also as the nations are being footstooled prior to Christ's return in history. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13, quote, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? At the ascension. What's he doing at the right hand of the Father? Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Of course, these institutions today, which are full of unredeemed people, cannot and should not be redeemed by force. But part of what happens in the process of the discipling of the nations is that all these institutions are changed from opposing Christ and His kingdom to obeying Him as the people within these institutions are regenerated. There are two kingdoms in God's redemptive plan, but it's not two divided kingdoms of Christ. It's the kingdom of darkness and Satan and all the institutions aligned with Him and the kingdom of light and Christ and all the institutions and people devoted to Him. This is all throughout the New Testament, where the battle is between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. Just back up a couple of verses in our main text in Colossians, to verse 13. He has delivered us, from where? From the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Scripture, there is no mention of two kingdoms of Christ. In the Bible, you are either holy in Satan's kingdom or in Christ's kingdom. There is no neutral kingdom. You can't have your foot in one and another foot in the other. Governments, businesses, schools, families, and individuals are either on Christ's team or they are playing for a different team. Satan and his kingdom no longer have any legitimate authority over the nations. And any power that Satan still retains is illegitimate in light of Christ having inherited the nations. Daniel 7, Psalm 2, Matthew 28. The nature of Christ's kingdom, as we talked about, is one that loots the kingdom of Satan and destroys it. That's why as a function of Christ inheriting the nations, we not only see individuals commanded to live in holiness, but nations, kings, and rulers. Christ has one kingdom and one people and total authority over everything in His kingdom, which is everything in heaven and on earth. It's a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one, but as we said, the heavenly kingdom's rule doesn't stop at the pearly gates. Now, does Christ have different spheres of authority and rules set up within His one kingdom? Of course. There is self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. Each of these have their own jurisdiction. 
The church cannot punish evildoers with the sword. The civil magistrate cannot excommunicate from the church. But all of these spheres of authority exist within the single kingdom of Christ. And they are opposed to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. We also need to be aware, beyond the um, pessimistic eschatology that Radical Two Kingdoms teaches, we also need to be aware that Radical Two Kingdoms' view also smuggles in a reductionistic view of the gospel, and so by extension, they have a reductionistic view of the Great Commission. They say the church needs to just preach the gospel, but they limit the meaning of the gospel to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the associated forgiveness of sin, of sins that Christ offers, which is fundamental and which we love. If they, uh, but, they, um, but if they include any talk of the kingdom at all in their gospel message, it's only about a future kingdom, which isn't on the earth now, except spiritually in the gathered church as they seek to administer the sacraments and practice church discipline. This reductionism is all very foreign to Scripture. So what is the purpose of missions, of the Great Commission? Is, it is that all nations would be transformed from Christ-hating nations, Christ-disobeying nations, towards Christ-loving nations, Christ-obeying nations, worshipping nations, nations filled with servants of Christ who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law and the kingdom of God in every sphere and institution, culturally transformed. The good news in Scripture is not only centered around the atonement, but is also centered around the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom, which is inextricably linked to what Christ accomplished on the cross. And in Scripture, this kingdom is not limited to a Sunday worship service. It is Christ's authority over everything in heaven and on earth, including rulers and kings. As the saying goes, there is not one square inch in the universe over which Christ does not declare mine. This authority that Christ now wields is very, very good news. In fact, that Christ has inherited the nations is no less a precious aspect of the gospel than the fact is that Christ is Savior of your soul. We see so clearly the political implications of this heavenly kingdom on earth, which was turning the world upside down, as it says in the book of Acts. A. A. Hodge once said, quote, Since the kingdom of God on earth is not confined to the mere ecclesiastical sphere, but aims at absolute universality and extends its supreme reign over every department of human life, it follows that it is the duty of every loyal subject to endeavor to bring all human society, social and political, as well as ecclesiastical, into obedience to its law of righteousness. It is our duty, as far as lies in our power, immediately to organize human society and all its institutions and organs upon a distinctively Christian basis. Indifference or impartiality here between the law of the kingdom and the law of the world or of its prince the devil is utter treason to the king of righteousness. The Bible, the great statute book of the kingdom, explicitly lays down principles which when candidly applied will regulate the action of every human being in all relations. There can be no compromise. The king said with regard to all descriptions of moral agents in all spheres of activity, he that is not with me is against me. End quote. Sadly, many do not see the Great Commission as something that transforms civilization because they see cultural institutions as common and not something that needs redeeming. By contrast, a one-kingdom view recognizes that Christ's kingdom is one that scatters the darkness wherever it lies. We don't see darkness becoming light, but we do see darkness being defeated, resulting ultimately in a redeemed earth with all of its institutions under Christ's feet. 
The Scripture teaches that as part of the Great Commission, we, the people of God, are to disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And all that Christ commands affects every human person in every vocation that they have. So we as the church cannot obey the Great Commission if we are not teaching them how to obey Christ in, their, in these different spheres. Or if we are muzzling the church in speaking against issues that may be deemed political. All that Christ commands includes the command to proclaim the gospel. A fully orbed gospel presentation includes the notion that Messiah has come in Christ and that he has inherited the nations and received all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, let us examine, as we wrap up, some common objections you may hear in critique of One Kingdom theology. I know I've heard a few of these. Here's one, quote, The kingdoms of this world will not become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ until Christ returns, end quote. This despite the fact that the book of Revelation, chapter 11, which we heard today, explicitly regards the notion that the kingdoms of the world are now Christ as a present reality, because it is a picture of the throne room in heaven when Christ ascended. If you've ever sang or heard Handel's Messiah at, the Christmas, at, at Christmas time, the kingdoms of the world, I'm not going to sing it, uh, you'll notice this is treated as a present reality as well. Essentially, again, the, the radical two kingdoms view is hoping you will assume a pessimistic eschatology and an under-realized eschatology from the get-go so you can swallow down this dualistic form of the view of the kingdom. Another common saying that you will hear, there is no Christian way to fly an airplane. There's no such thing as a Christian stir-fry. That's sort of true as far as it goes and kind of a cute statement. If anybody, though asks you that, you know, if there is a Christian way to cook a stir-fry, drive a bus, or enact a treaty as a means, uh, and they're doing that as a means to deny the totality of the Christian worldview, just remember, there are distinctively anti-Christian ways of doing all of those things. Just because others borrow from the Christian worldview and do moral things doesn't negate the fact that the source of all morality is Yahweh. It all belongs to Him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23 So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things includes the stir-fry. Secondly, uh, not every specific sinful action is spelled out explicitly in the Bible. Here's a list of some things in the Bible uh, that are sinful, that the Bible does not explicitly state as sinful, but are categories of sin. Here's a few examples. Arson, communism, pornography, sex change operations. You get the picture. There's lots of things in the Bible that are clearly sinful that does not explicitly say Though clearly, categorically, all these things are sinful, as that is the application of biblical law. The Bible gives us the Ten Commandments and a pattern for how we apply these to our lives, our families, our government, and we are not to ignore them. Uh, here's another common thing that you'll hear. Quote, Augustine taught two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Therefore, he taught two kingdom theology. Frequently, you have to understand, they will conflate Augustine's two cities with their understandings of the two kingdoms. With Augustine, the two cities were competing religions, competing civilizations, not a divided kingdom of Christ where one kingdom is morally neutral and not in need of redemption. It is no accident that Augustine was referred to as the father of Christendom. Another one, quote, Satan is the god of this world, so cultural transformation will never happen, end quote. 
that we must remember as Christ is king who rules and reigns over all creation with all authority in heaven and on earth. It is impossible for Satan to be God of the world or the age that was passing away in those days in any legal or judicial sense. No, Satan is the God of those who reject the Messiah in the same sense that a glutton's God is their belly. Satan is the ruler of all those that seek to follow and obey him rather than Christ, including the Pharisees of those days. But his kingdom has already been declared obsolete, and all power and authority over the nations has been transferred to Christ. Judicially and legally, it is Christ that is the only legitimate king on the throne, and Satan is merely a pretender and a usurper whose dominion will be obliterated by the Great Commission. And that's not just a tangential thing. It really is true that the king of Saudi Arabia, the county dog catcher, your family, your personal heart, all Christ has legal authority over it. And whether you are obeying him or not, that doesn't change the legal status. Uh, that Satan is identified as uh, uh, the god of a first century world is an identification of a problem to be fixed by the Great Commission, not an eschatological prophecy of fatalism over all history before Christ returns. Here's another one. We can see abortion is wrong. We can say abortion is wrong, but we can't base our appeals to the civil magistrate to outlaw abortion on the basis of Scripture or Christ's authority. We can only appeal to natural law, which we hold in common. On the, on the issue of abortion, according to the Radical Tukinum view, the church can say abortion is wrong, but only because they see it in natural law. But they would not make specific pronouncements on what the government or individuals in government should do, or call out specific rulers for rebellion against Christ on the basis of Scripture. Suffice to say, Scripture does the opposite, and directly confronts the civil magistrate on the basis of Christ's lordship in Psalm 2, as we've already read. Uh, another one, and this is a big one, and we'll wrap with this one. We will always be uh, in Babylon, in exile, until the return of Christ. That's a big one. So despite the fact that sometimes Christians may be referred to as exiles of war, as with first century Jews who were still living in the Babylonian dispersion in 1 Peter, or, or modern Christians, um, say like modern Christians in Iraq who have been exiled by ISIS and they've been kicked out into a foreign land, those are exiles too. But nowhere in, scriptures, in Scripture are all Christians consigned to the exit, uh, eschatological category of exiles. Just the opposite. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 contrasts Old Covenant Christians like Abraham who, re who were regarded as exiles with New Covenant Christians in chapter 13 who are regarded as having already arrived at Mount Zion in the New Covenant. Verse 22, but you, speaking to New Covenant Christians, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember also that Jesus Christ prayed as we talked about that we not be taken out of the world but that we be kept from evil. And Ephesians 2 makes clear we in the new covenant are not exiles but rather citizens. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens 
But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are to be exiles to worldliness and fleshliness, but not in some, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through since. Christ prayed, prayed, as we said, that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. We are representatives of heaven here, and we will one day inherit the earth. We are, able, we are to be light that scatters the darkness. We are to be leaven that works through the whole lump. We are to be salt that preserves the good, to grow from a mustard seed to a giant cedar, a stone that becomes a great mountain. That is the nature of the one kingdom of Jesus Christ, one where we pray and act towards having what is done on heaven be done on the earth. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to heavenize the earth to a redeemed Eden. The kingdom, which has rightful claim to the earth, is already here on earth. We are heavenly citizens on the earth, and heaven is coming here to be united with the earth, but we do await its consummation. The Great Commission calls us to disciple the nations, to teach them Christ's commands. It's more than just personal evangelism. We are participating in the work of heavenizing the earth. The church is not a group of exiles in Babylon. We're more like Joshua and Canaan. The kingdom isn't about defending a few outposts around the world. It's an invading army looting and destroying the defunct kingdom of Satan with the gospel of the person, work, and kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Amen.